get started. I went over uh, uh, a little bit last time. I want to try not to go over this time, but that being said, um, uh, i got to kind of keep on, on track and get moving. Uh, our first class, we went over uh, natural knowledge, revealed knowledge, how God teaches us, uh, as well as uh, the six parts of the uh, catechism itself and kind of a review of law or uh, introduction to law and gospel. Class number two, we took a look at the first commandment. That is, what is God and who is God? Uh, we also looked at the first commandment, uh, which uh, told us what to do and not do. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We saw that uh, our forefathers fell into sin. We talked about the fall into sin. We talked about creation and then the fall into sin in which we lost the image of God. And yet Jesus is the one uh, who uh, uh, made us, set us free by keeping the law for us. And um, uh, we had a review of that. Uh, today, with class number three, uh, we're going to push forward with the second commandment and where we talked mainly about the work of the Heavenly Father in creation and then the fall and, and that last time. This time we're going to mainly be talking about the second person of the Trinity after we look at the second commandment. So, let's get going. Um, I've got sheets. Uh, there's obviously... More sheets last time. You might say, well, we didn't get through all of them last. Yeah, this is going to be a guide. I'm not going to go through every one of them. I found that was a little bit too much. I didn't quite have time to cut it all down. Okay, why do each of Luther's meanings begin? We should fear and love God so that... Uh, Luther goes through the Ten Commandments, and as he explains the meaning of each one, after the first one, which is we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, everyone after that says... Uh, that we should fear and love God. Luther understood that faith or trust required in the first commandment was the fountainhead from which the fear and love of God in fulfilling all of the other commandments flow. So if you don't have the one true God, first commandment, you can't do any of the other commandments, second through ten. Um. Come over here to my uh, uh, thing. Exodus 21 through 17 is the text of the Ten Commandments. The Lord begins by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God tells us who he is, and he tells us what he has done. As he gets to the text of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods, he begins to say, yeah, this is the way you respond, because I have made you my children. What do we find, then, is the purpose of these commandments? Well, as they show us our sins, they identify, expose, and kill all of our false gods. But, as we are saved and, and wish to follow these as a guide, they then identify who his people are. The people that live as his uh, uh, people are the ones who show that they know what he has done for them. So we saw last time... The law always shows us that we have sinned, but we found out that in Jesus coming for us, and we're going to take a lot of time about that today, we find that he is the one who kept the law for us. So what happens is, is our sins are given to Jesus, who suffer and dies for him. His perfect life, he does fear, love, and trust in his heavenly Father. He gives that perfect life to us. It's like a free ticket to heaven. Uh, and so, in that way, uh, God works salvation, long gospel. False conclusions that we can draw of the law. Once you see the law, to simply say it is impossible to be saved? No. It is impossible to keep it? Absolutely, that's true. But having seen the law, it's not a matter of despair. Another false conclusion is, well, after seeing the law, maybe I'm good enough. That's not true either. The law is designed to show us our sins so that we might have and know where our Savior is. We saw last time that the commandments, each one of them, have something that we are to do and what we are not to do, a command and a prohibition. Uh, as we saw, the first commandment said, you shall have no other gods. We spent a lot of time 
saying, well, what does that mean? How do you have the one true God and who is he? What does that mean? It means fear, love, and particularly trust. We talked about knowledge, assent, and trust, holding on to. That's what faith is. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the second commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Or uh, the older version says you shall not take his name in vain for vanity. That would be to misuse. Well, then what does God want? Well, he wants us to use his name rightly. So we're going to take a look at that. Sometimes we describe these sins in a couple different ways. You can have a sin of omission. That is, you omitted to do something you were commanded. God said, do this, and you didn't do what you're commanded. You omit. That would be a sin of omission. If you do what you're told not to do, that's a sin of commission. You commit, you do what you're not supposed to do. These are the two kinds of sins. And they can go with each one of the uh, uh, commandments. We will find, as we go through, that the sins of omission, where we omitted doing what we're supposed to, the gospel then, the good news, is that Jesus actually did what he was supposed to do. He lived a perfect life in the human flesh. And he obeyed that law. We call this his active obedience. This is what he did for us. For our sins of commission, when we did what we shouldn't do, we sinned. Jesus died to take away our punishment that we deserved. This is going to be described as his passive obedience. He allowed himself to be uh, spit upon, crucified, suffered, and, and died. So, getting back to our text, Luther understood faith is the fountainhead from which fear and love come. So, Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding of those who do his commandments, his praise endures forever, we see fear. Or, John 14, 23, Jesus teaches, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Well, There's no keeping his word unless there is love, and there is no wisdom unless there is fear. And so as I drew here, it is from fear and love of God that comes our thoughts. And usually the thoughts precede the words, and usually the thoughts and words precede the actions. And so we see that the stuff comes out, these works, thoughts, words, and deeds, are going to either be good or bad. If they flow from a fear and love of God, they will be good works. Uh, if they don't, they will, they will not. Second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain or misuse his name. What does this mean? Luther says we should fear and love God so that we may not curse, swear, use witchcraft, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon him in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. The second commandment. All right, we need to take a look at God's name. Of course, there are things, and Luther in his explanation says we are not to do, curse, swear, use witchcraft, satanic arts, liar, deceive, but we are supposed to use it rightly. He's going to talk about pray and praise and give thanks. So think of each of these commandments as a gift that God is giving to us. We, t- we tend to look at them simply as kind of an adversary. You know? No, God's giving me a gift, too. He said, ah, Here's my name. Uh, It's a gift for you. You can use it rightly. You can use it to call upon me. You can use it to praise me for what I have given you. You can use it to give thanks. That's what I want you to hear. Oh, that's a great gift. Or you can misuse it for things that I didn't intend for you to, to do. All right, so let's take a look at this name. What is God's name? Exodus 20, 17. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold guiltless who misuses his name, whoever misuses his name. Now, where where it has that, if you look in most of your English translations, they will make this word here, L-O-R-D, all capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. As opposed to 
capital L, little o-r-d, which is normally what, what we see. Um, why do they do that? Because they're translating. And the L, capital L, capital O, capital R, Lord, is actually God's proper name. His name is Yahweh. Uh, it's written in Hebrew like this. It's written from right to left. Yod, hey, vow, uh, hey. Uh, Y-H-W-H, and it's pronounced Yahweh, uh, that is his name. So in Hebrew, it would say, you shall not misuse the name of Yahweh, your God. It actually would have his name there. For Yahweh will not hold guiltless anyone who misuses his name. That includes his proper name. Now there is, beside the word Yahweh, there is also a title, a title, and the title is Adonai, and that means master. Okay, so someone who is a lord or a master would be Adonai. Let me give you an example. Uh, my proper name, the name I was given at birth, is Michael David Henson. Michael is my proper name. I have a title, and the title is pastor. That, that's one of sometimes father and sometimes, you know, whatever. Uh, um, and so there are those. So here's what happened. Um, what happened is, is that God said, don't misuse the name Yahweh. And the Jews mistakenly, mistakenly thought, well, we'll make sure not to misuse his name. Anytime we see the word Yahweh in the text, this word, we're going to say the word Lord or Adonai. And that way, We'll never misuse his name because we'll never say it. The problem is what? <laughs> well, God doesn't want us not to use his name. He wants us to use it rightly. Um, if I give you a, a, a new basketball, a new toy, and you take that thing and you put it up in the closet and you don't use it, you know, I'm not going to be happy. Well, God isn't happy either with this, but that's what happened over the years, and they thought that would work, and they thought that they would simply put. And so, in the English text, they will distinguish so that you know which word is behind there. That's God's proper name. So, the word, uh, if we go back to Hebrew, um, uh, the word Joshua is the exact same uh, as the uh, Hebrew Yeshua, Yahweh saves, Shua, is saves. When it comes into Greek, it becomes Jesus. So what's quite interesting is that Yahweh actually kind of comes down to us. It doesn't look exactly the same, uh, but the word Jesus is, is to put that together. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and they said, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said, say to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. Well, the word Yahweh actually means something. <laughs> I know it's his proper name, but it actually means I exist. I am, which makes perfect sense. I exist because, well, we saw last time, when has God existed? Well, Always. <laughs> and so when he says, I exist, he always has, yes. And so that, that's who he is. Um, my proper name is Michael. Uh, the word El is the word for God. Micah is one who is like. I am one who is like God. That's why the angel was named Michael. Um, uh, I don't actually keep my name. Uh, um, I don't, I'm not actually like God. I said. But, uh, um, I, you know, that, that, God actually does his name. Um, so this is his name. What does he want us to uh, do with this name? He wants us to use it and not misuse it. What are some of those things? Uh, what is forbidden in this commandment? The sin of taking God's name in vain, especially by, and they list the things that Luther mentions, cursing, swearing, using witchcraft, lying, or deceiving by his name. 22. What is cursing by God's name? To blaspheme God or to invoke upon oneself or others the wrath and punishment of God. So, you speak evil of someone or explicitly sending someone to hell. 
Uh, if anyone curses his God, speaks guilty of God, he will be held responsible. Um, out of the same mouth come praising and cursing, James says. My brothers, this should not be. We, we, we shouldn't be doing this. So uh, primarily we would think of cursing when someone would be told to go to hell. Um, what are you doing? You're damning them. You're saying, because of your sins, you should not be forgiven and you should go to hell. Well, for us to put ourselves in the place of God and to think that someone else should not be forgiven, we go back to the Word where it talks about forgive as, you, as we forgive others. Forgive us as we forgive others. For us to be in this speaking evil, even wishing to send someone to hell, no, that's, that's not what we are to do. That, that, would, that would be cursing. He says, no, I don't, I don't want that. Uh, uh, now, there are those who have been, who have been given uh, um, this, pastors, where there is unrepentance. I have to declare to someone that they are going to hell. Uh, no, if you don't believe in Jesus and you're holding to your sin... Um, I've been given, but normally this is not something, you know, only for someone who has been given that authority to speak in that way. Swearing is another thing that we are not to do. It's different from cursing. Swearing is where we take an oath in God's name. Um, here it says in 24, bottom of that page, false, blasphemous, or frivolous swearing, all oaths in uncertain things. Uh, and so, he gives uh, an example, Matthew 5. Uh, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, nor shall you perform your oath to the Lord. Uh, but you shall perform your oath. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. He goes on to say, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Primarily, we're not to be given to swearing. Um, what is swearing? It's where I say, I swear to tell the truth. And normally, uh, we just say I swear, but we mean I swear to tell the truth. I, what I'm saying is true. And what follows in that swearing, which may be understood, is this. And if I am lying, I want God to punish me. That's why you swear. Um, that's why it is such an important thing if you've, uh, at the point that we are to do this, what manner of swearing is permitted? We are uh, permitted to swear when it's demanded by the glory of God and for the welfare of our neighbor. Um, if you're in a court of law and it's a matter of truth and we're concerned, the government, he may ask you to swear. Do you swear by, you know, the Bible? Do you swear that you are telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the that's an important matter. It definitely ought to... Now, we, we shouldn't lie with our swearing, but we're saying, and God punish me if I'm lying. In normal matters, we shouldn't be doing that. If I say, you know, you're going to be at church today? Oh, I swear I'll be at church today. Well, are you going... You know, and then, I swear. And then, you know, the more I hear someone say, I swear, the more I kind of wonder, I, I, I wonder if they ever tell the truth. You know... Let your yes be no. If you tell the truth, you don't have to tell me I swear. If, if all that comes out of your mouth, just let your yes be no, yes, and your no, no, then we don't have to be, get into the swearing. Swearing is when I'm suspecting or it needs to be. Um, and so, no, um, we are not to, having God as our witness, punish if we're lying, uh, nor should we swear, especially in uncertain matters. Um, you know, you don't want to swear that it's going to rain tomorrow or something like that. Um, that that it, it, it needs to be a, uh, a serious endeavor. Uh, I mentioned 25 when we are permitted. Uh, what about the using of witchcraft? Usually we talk about satanic arts at this point by God's name. Sometimes people will want to use God's name or word. They'll use it without his command and promise and they will claim to perform or perform supernatural things such as conjuring, fortune-telling, consulting the dead, similar satanic arts. God has not given us uh, his name for these things, uh, nor uh, are they kind of an amulet that you can pull out and somehow you, you can use. Yes, there are those that, oh, I'm a white witch. 
I, I'm not. I'm a witch, of course, because I, I do fortune telling. But 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 I'm not an evil one. And and so then they use God's name with it. And and I'm a Christian too. Like n- no, you cannot be. Deuteronomy 18. There should be found. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or who one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, a medium, a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. Leviticus 19, give no regard to mediums, familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. Uh, So we seek none of those things, nor do we seek advice or help. Um, Why? We've been asked to call upon the name of the Lord our God, call upon him. Um, And that is not where he has promised to uh, speak. Some, uh, I know they print the horoscopes. (laughs) <laughs> I know they're, you know, oh, we've got the zodiac signs or whatever. I, you know, it, it's it's just a minor form of, of, of this. All right, what else? 27, what's meant by lying or deceiving by his name? Uh, this is whenever we, and as we have here, 27, adorning false doctrine or an ungodly life with the word and the name of God. So let's get down to... Uh, uh, the real point of this. So I've got a name. My name is Michael Henson. Um, and so if you treat me well, uh, you take me out for lunch and you say nice things to me, but then you uh, uh, take my name and you know uh, uh, say that my name, Michael Henson, is silly and uh, you say... Um, uh, um, profanity about my name. Kind of go, well, that's not what we're talking about. What do we mean when God talks about using his name? Let me give you a couple examples. So, um, I got a check for you. Allison, I'm going to write you out a check, and I'm going to write you out a check for $1,000. Here you go. And you go, well, thanks, Pastor. And then you look down there and you go, well, you didn't sign it. I go, ah, what's a little name among friends, you know? Well, it's no good. Oh, but if I write my name on it, okay, so that must mean it's more than just a title. Why? Because if I sign my name to that, you go to cash it. Who gets in trouble if there's not enough Does the name get in trouble? Does the name get put into jail? Me. Why? Because the name is who I, it stands for who I am and what I do. And so the name is important. Um, The name, when God says his name, he doesn't just mean don't use a certain vocables. He means my name is the revelation of who he is and what he has done. So, um, when God has his word and he has words on it and he puts his name on it and says, this is God's word. He's staking who he is and what he has done for us on this. He's saying, this belongs to me. That's what God is saying. And so with this name, the worst way of misusing his name is to teach false doctrine false things and say God said it whatever I command you be careful to observe it you shall not add to it nor take away from it God says behold I'm against the prophets says the Lord that use their tongues and say he said when he didn't so if I come to you and I teach oh just try hard I'm sure that if you try hard God will save you God says that's not true that's too False doctrine, that is to cover up false teaching and put God's name on it. That is the worst uh, of that. You end up deceiving people with this doctrine or ungodly life. Um, In vain, they worship me teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. If I come teaching you stuff and it's not God's word, it's just my own ideas, um, that is to lie or deceive by God's name. Sometimes people use God's name to cover up an unbelieving heart. Uh, uh, you know, do, they know that they don't believe, but then they use God's name to cover it up. Um, uh, we wouldn't know, you know 
they're the only ones that does. What does God want us to do with this name? Well, Psalm 50:15, call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. What does God, again, he's given us this name, he wants us to use it. Call upon me, use it. Um, you know, when my, when my wife says, uh, you know, hey, Michael, go take out the trash. Well, why didn't you go? Well, it was just my name. It wasn't me. You just wanted Michael. Come on. It's who I am. And that's why God said, I'm going to give you this. This is your way of accessing me. Um, you're not going to call upon Baal. You're not going to call upon, you know, Allah. You're going to call upon the triune God. Call upon me. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened. This is also one where people will call upon the saints or pray to Mary or things of that sort. God does not want us to use that. Uh, he wants us to use his name that we ask and it will be given to you. He wants us to pray. He wants us to praise the Lord for that which he has done. If God does something and you take the credit... Well, that, that would not be right. That would not praise him for what he has done. Uh, also, then, that we might use his name to give thanks in all circumstances uh, to the Lord. When we get to Romans, I think you would see Romans ten thirteen: For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, it's not that this name is some kind of amulet, like I said, secret, something or another. In fact, God sends pastors that they might preach and that people might hear and then they hear they might believe and those who believe, what does that mean? Call on the name of the Lord. It means they pray, they trust, they have, give thanks. They, that's what they do. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord, that is, trust in who God is and what he has done, uh, has saved that's why the second commandment uh, is there to teach us how we might do that. All right, second part for today. Oh, I did include for you on your green sheets. Not only did I include that the numbering sometime is different for uh, uh, the Reformed, the Roman Catholics, and the Lutherans. We end up going, or the Jews, we end up going with the, uh, the received tradition that we had. There is no numbering of it. It's not a right or wrong, but just so that you know, sometimes people use different numberings. I did include, um, using God's name in vain, also includes euphemisms, many of which we use all the time, not maybe realizing, or maybe we do. Um, you know, instead of saying, God damn you, we say, God darn you, and we think that prevented us from that. Everybody knows exactly what you're saying when you say that. Um, or some of these others, things like golly, gosh, geez, jeepers, uh, or jeepers, creepers, Jesus Christ, I mean, just... Look them up. You look them up in the, script, in the dictionary and they will tell you it's just a euphemism, a good way of saying a bad thing. But it still means exactly the same thing. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's when these come out of your mouth and then you hear your child, you didn't realize you were doing this all the time, and they come back with it, that you go, ooh, maybe I shouldn't be saying it that way. Um, okay. Um, next part. We're on page three. Article of Redemption. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? Luther tells us, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but he did it with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. Of whom does this article speak? It speaks of Jesus Christ. And he is both 
true God and true man. But let's take a look at the words Jesus Christ first. Jesus is his proper name, just as my name is Michael. Uh, his name, Jesus, Jesus in Greek, uh, comes to us from Joshua in the Old Testament, one who saves. He is a saving one. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. That's why he was given the name. His name says who he is and he does it. Uh, we often call him the Christ or Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ means anointed one. Uh, and when something is anointed, oil is poured on, it's set apart. Uh, it's different. And so he is set apart to be the Savior. In fact, sometimes we even use the word Messiah. You can be a Christ for various purposes. You can be set aside as a, uh, as a Christ to be a king, to be whatever. But the one, the very one set apart to take away sin, so one and only is the Messiah. Um, Christ is, is pretty well synonymous at this point. So that's why we use uh, uh, Jesus Christ. Why is he called Jesus? Why is he called Christ? 132, why do we believe that Jesus Christ is true God? Um, oh, I did put uh, a couple more. Not only uh, do we see this uh, in a lot of church art, this, I know it looks like maybe up in front, an I and an H and an S. It's actually the first letters, E-A-S-U-S, um, the first letters of Jesus in Greek. And the word Christos for Christ is a chi in a row. There's a chi and a row. So if you see those symbols on a cross or up on the church uh, architecture and pyramids, um, it's simply to be the one who is, is the Christ, Jesus Christ. Okay. Why do we believe Jesus is true God? Well, because the scriptures themselves describe him as that. They give him divine names. 1 John 5 says he is the true God and eternal life. John 1, 1 and 2 says in the beginning was the word. Later it's going to tell us that the word is Jesus. It said the word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's letting us know uh, uh, just exactly who he is. Um, Revelation 1.8, Jesus uh, in that revelation says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the A and the Z, the beginning and the ending, the first Greek letter, the last Greek letter. I am who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, Jesus uses divine names. He claims that for himself. In addition to that, Jesus also, we believe, is, well, I, there are some other things. It does attribute to him divine attributes, like being unchangeable, uh, all power is given unto me, being omnipotent, uh, Lord, you know all things, omniscient, all those things that we mentioned last time about who God is, he has those as well. He was there at creation, creating all things. Um, we find that not only that, it says of him that Jesus does divine works, things only God can do. He upholds all things. He preserves creation. He forgives sins. Uh, that's why I believe he is true God. Question 133. Why do we believe that Jesus Christ is also true man? Well, uh, it also speaks of him in that way. I mentioned John 1, 1 to 2. When we get to 14, it says that the word, who is Jesus, became flesh, took on human flesh. Uh, and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Or Colossians 2.9, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives, but in bodily form. So we find that the one who was true God actually took on human flesh into his person. If you want to look at it this way, is this, God, Jesus has always been divine going back as, you know, from eternity. But at some particular point, at his conception, the Virgin Mary, he unites with his divinity, humanity. We call this the personal union. Uh, he has now two natures, and he will forever, without them ever being separated, he will always be true God and true man. And so, where last time we described the Trinity as having three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, now we say of that second person, he is both God's Son, 
and Mary's son. He is both divine and human, has a divine nature and a human nature. He is both true God and true man, and yet there's only one person. Um, Once again, that mystery that the scriptures don't explain to us, just as with the persons of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit is 100% God. The Father is 100% God. Jesus is 100% God. Yeah. So what about this? Well, he is 100% divine and 100% human. Um, Not half or part or something like that. Um, These two natures, therefore, are united together in such a way uh, that the Son of God has received that human nature to his own person, and this one person has two natures. Um, At times, we will see that he partakes of these, and it's described. Um, You know, something will be said uh, that uh, the Word, which would be divine, takes on humanity, flesh. Wow. Uh, the fullness of the Godhead, the divinity, is now bodily. Jesus says that the power of being all-powerful is now given to him in his body. Or, the one who is the prince of life got killed. Um, John 1, the one who has blood, that would be his humanity, now cleanses us from sin. That's something only God can do. And so, Jesus is so unique because he's the only one that could do this. Um, None of us could be that savior. For what purpose then did the Son of God assume human nature? The purpose was that he might redeem and save us because no one else could do it. Uh, If he was only true God, uh, he couldn't live under the law for us. If he was only true man, his uh, payment price would be for one, not for all. And so, what do we see? Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 says it this way. And he too shared in the humanity, took on a human nature, so that by his death... Now, God by himself is for eternal. He can't die. But man can. So he took on a humanity that he might die. That's why he needed to be true man. That he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Well, the devil had this curse. Uh, we had failed, and so the curse of God was upon us. And he said, no, I'm going to destroy it by dying for you and taking away that. He no longer can accuse us of having a curse. He's going to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. He did it that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make, and that's the big word, atonement for the sins of the world. It is a payment price for others. He would restore the unity by paying for our sins. And he could only do that if he was capable of fulfilling the law and suffering and dying as our substitute. So Galatians 4, and we'll get this passage several times. When the fullness of time could come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The law was given. We're all under the law. He came to put himself under the law with us. Because again, you might remember, who has to keep the law? Not cats, not men, humanity. He said, I will put myself under that law by becoming man. And in that way, I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to buy back those who were under the law. So that, and we'll talk about this adoption we get as sons, comes through faith. Question. It's the same word as the word propitiation and atonement. Um, there's not an easy... Uh, uh, it, it actually comes from sacrificial language where you would uh, kill an animal on a sacrifice in your place. And so there would be a scapegoat. Maybe you've heard of that where the priest... You would put your sins on the scapegoat and he would be killed in your place. That's where it comes from. Um, the, the, the word itself, I can't break it up and like give, say, hey, here's the... Oh, that's where it comes from, the Old Testament. I will tell you, though, that I usually, it's not etymologically correct, but it helps you to remember. If it restores a unity, in other words, we were apart because of our sins, and now, because he paid the price, we're brought back together with God, at one 
is a way to rem- kind of remember. It's just a mnemonic. It's not actually where it comes from. But he brings it so that we're back at one with God. So, uh, that is the reason why it was necessary that he would be a true man. I've already told you about how that way he would do his active obedience. He would keep the law for us. He also needed to take on human flesh so that he might suffer and die and and take the curse that was upon us. Number 130, let's see, my sheets here. Yeah, there we go. Um, Why was it necessary to be God or to be man, to place himself under the law, to suffer and die? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be true God? Well, so his life would be a sufficient payment or a sufficient ransom for all people. Um, so uh, uh, Mary is, is tied up on the uh, railroad tracks by that dastardly, what, what was the? Snidely whiplash. That's by dastardly Schneidly, you know. And so I go to her rescue and I push her away you know, so that uh, uh, she is not run over by the train. But, you know, the only way for me to do that was I then get killed by the train. Um, uh, You know, one person can give their life for another. Um, You're in prison, I'll go and I'll I'll do that. But if I give my life for Mary, I can't save your life, and I can't save your life. Jesus, by being true God, his life is of an infinite value. And so, by his suffering and death, one life, it is sufficient for all. That is why he needed to be true God. In addition to that, so that he could overcome death and the devil. Man by itself could not, but uh, as true God, he could defeat. So, uh, he came to be true man and true God uh, because we needed it. To appease the wrath, to overcome sin, to be a sufficient ransom. Um, it says here, and I... I uh, I like these two put side by side. Under question 138, page 5. None of them, Psalm 49, it says, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious, and it seeth us forever. And so it lets us know, hey, there's going to be no redemption. Nobody can, give a, uh, nobody can redeem his brother. And then, Mark 10, when Christ comes, says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are reconciled by man, human, by himself, can't do it. Just impossible. But the Son of Man, who is true God, could make a ransom for sin. And that was his purpose in coming. Question 139. How manifold is the office which Christ took upon himself for our salvation? In other words, he came to do it. So what was his job? What was his office? Well, we often speak of a threefold office. We speak of him as being both a prophet, a priest, and a king. So as a prophet, Jesus came to preach. He came to tell us the truth about the Heavenly Father, to tell us the truth about our sin, um, in fact, uh, Moses already told God's people that when Jesus come, he would be that final prophet in which he says, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee. In other words, one of you, one of the human brethren of thy brethren, like unto me, and unto him you shall hearken. If you don't listen to this prophet, Jesus, uh, you will not be saved. Uh, at the transfiguration, The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, hear him. And so Jesus preaches life through his word. His words even brought people back to life and and healed people. But that's not only. He's still, because he lives, we're going to talk about he rose from the dead. He's still preaching. He does it through pastors and teachers. The office of the pastoral office. We'll take a look at Ephesians 4, 10 through 11 or 12 in a little bit. Jesus said of those who were the apostles and pastors, he who listens to you, listens to me. I promise to preach through you. When they preach my word, it's as if I am preaching to you. Jesus also has a priestly office. 
And as a priestly office, what does a priest do? He stands in the stead of someone else. That's what a priest is supposed to do. And so our Jesus pleads and prays to the Father on our behalf. Um, More than that, as a priest, he actually, you might say, most priests in the Old Testament, they would make a sacrifice. Jesus is both the priest that makes the sacrifice and the one not only interceding, but he becomes the sacrifice as well. Romans 8.34, Jesus intercedes for us. Um, you know that Galatians 4, again, he came to redeem them, to go in their place. Um, listen to 1 Peter 2.24. You can see the substitutionary aspect of his priesthood. Christ, his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. He died, but you got the healing. Uh, He did this for us. Jesus also is a king, prophet, priest, and king. And as our king, Jesus rules and protects us uh, because his kingdom is the church. And so Jesus continues to rule and provide for us. He does this by his word. He does this through the sacraments. Um, And in this way, he protects all who are his, both in his kingdom of power. All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. He does it in his kingdom of grace, where he comes to his church. And he will also be our heavenly king, uh, the kingdom of glory. And so we speak of Jesus in his threefold office. In all of these, he is doing us that we might have salvation. Next section. Uh, We need to talk about the two states of his person. He is both uh, in a state of humiliation and a state of exaltation. So what do we mean by this? What do we mean? All right. Well, wherein did Christ's state of humiliation consist? In this, that Christ, according to his human nature, did not always and not fully use the divine majesty communicated to his human nature. So Jesus is both true God and true man. You can't distinguish the two. But what do we find? We find that from his conception, birth, suffering, crucifixion, and death, he did not fully and always use his divine power. In fact, he could have stopped them from spitting on him. He didn't. He could have stopped them from crucifying him. He didn't. He could have stopped them from speaking evil of him. He didn't. Uh, uh, In all these ways, it describes his humiliation. And so Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says it this way. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what was his thinking? What was God thinking? Who being in the form of God, he was fully God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And so he he didn't just go around act like God. In fact, he hid his divine nature. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man. He said, I'm going to come and and become a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. So what do we find? Well, he allowed himself to be conceived. Now, God, that's humiliating for a God to have a conception of a human being and that he might be born. Uh, he did choose a, uh, a woman who had uh, not had children, not sex. She was a virgin. Um, and yet, uh, even then, Mary had to be covered over by the power of the Holy Spirit, for she was a sinner too, so that the holy thing, which was the Son of God, wouldn't harm her. Um, but that's a part of his humiliation. I mean, even think about, you know, he, they, he, he wasn't even in a king's house. He wasn't even in an inn. He had to be born out in a stable. Um, Who came to him? Smelly shepherds. I mean, none of this is befitting of the God who created heaven and earth, but he did it for us. The birth of Christ, um, 
Yeah, we talk about, uh, I already described some of those things. How do we know Mary was without sin? Because it, it, she was not without, I mean, what did you say? How, how do, do we know she, no, how do we know she was a sinner? Because she was born of a man and a woman. <laughs> and everyone without exception who has a father that's a sinner and a mother is a sinner is a sinner. Because it says that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her, is going to cover over her to make sure that that which is in her, that holy thing that shall be born of thee, you know, will not harm her. Right. But Jesus has no human father. And with this covering over of the Holy Spirit, what is in her, it says, is from the Holy Spirit. So he has a human nature, but is without sin, and he's the only one. Um, he does not receive the sinful nature that comes from the fall because of a virgin birth. Um, I have to, I want to go back. Sure. Okay. Of the original sin. So, you know, all men and women are born original sin. Right. So, Mary had original sin. Yes. Okay, so because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was born with no sin. Because, of the, because that which was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, there's not a human father, it wasn't the result of natural copulation between a man and a woman, um, and so that this thing that is born, again, he is actually Mary's son, has you know her DNA, you would say, but the Holy Spirit makes it so that, you know, it does not harm her. I mean, anytime you have something holy, people run away. You know, that's uh, uh, that would harm, overcome. So, yeah. last time lesson two, What's that? I said last week's lesson lesson two has quite a bit on the fall and original sin. So you might want to review yeah. some of that too. Good. Any other questions? Very good. Um, so, I talked about the birth of Christ. Uh, his suffering. Uh, under Pontius Pilate, he suffered unspeakable tortures, both of body and soul. He died on the accursed tree. Um, we can go through all the passages that uh, speak about his suffering and death uh, with that. What about his burial? His sacred body is laid in a tomb, taken down from the tree after uh, uh, he suffered and died, uh, and it remained there unto the third day that God... Now, there are some things with his death. He is laid in the tomb that had never been laid in. He's laid in a rich man's tomb. But even then, that's a place for dead bodies. That's a place... It is all falling under the matter of humiliation, and particularly because Jesus could have stopped it all, and he didn't. He allowed that. He didn't always use his divine powers, though he was uh, divine. Why did he do this? To redeem me, a lost and condemned creature from all sins, from, the, uh, from death, and from the power of the devil. And so we talk about his, uh, uh, that's his, his work of redemption. Uh, Luther put it down this way. He redeemed, he bought me back, paid the price, purchased me, uh, won me, took me away from the power of the devil, from sin, from death, from the power of devil. He didn't do it with gold and silver, but he did use the shedding of his blood and his suffering and his death. And so his humiliation is everything that he did for our behalf. Uh, and so, um, you know, this... Romans 3 through uh, uh, 21 through 26. I'm going to have that listed for your daily devotion uh, on the last page. It's going to talk about how uh, we were declared righteous. We couldn't keep the law, but God gave us a righteousness. What was it that we have a Jesus um, who led a perfect life, took our sins, and he gave us his perfect life. This atonement uh, is good for all men. Uh, Now, Salvation is through faith in that atonement. Um, But he did suffer and die 
uh, for all men. Uh, what have, um, let's see here. One fifty nine. Has Christ redeemed, purchased, and won you only? This is where I said it was a universal atonement. Not me, not me only, but all lost and condemned mankind. Matthew eighteen, the Son of Man came in to save that which was lost. That would be every everyone. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, there are some false teachers that would say that Jesus died only for the believers or only for the elect. No blood lost on the wicked. That is not true. That is not true. Uh, Jesus did uh, shed his blood for all men, uh, for the sins of the whole world, as it says in 1 John uh, 2, verse 2. What about his state of exaltation? We talked about humiliation. Here's what it is. In this, that Christ, according to his human nature, fully and continually uses his divine majesty that is communicated to his human nature. So, beginning with his descent into hell, that is his actually his exaltation. So, why did he descend into hell? I think I've got, yeah, here, question 161. That Christ, having been quickened in his grave, come back to life, he exhibited himself to hell as its conqueror and triumphed over all his infernal enemies. What we find is that 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, Christ was put to death in the flesh, quickened by the Spirit, by which he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So what does he do? He comes back to life, and he goes down to hell to preach. But it's not a preaching to, so that they have a second chance or somehow they can be saved by it. We find that he went there as kind of a victory parade to tell them, my word that I told you, it's true. And I did it, and I came to show you. Um, Colossians 2.15, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And so he made a public spectacle. He went down there to proclaim his victory uh, even to them. Uh, this is a part of his exaltation. He's not, Jesus didn't descend into hell to suffer. His suffering was done. The redemption, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it was done. Everything after that, uh, you know, uh, is his exaltation. So, uh, where do we have these uh, words that describe his exaltation? Well, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand, and thence will come to judge the living and the dead. All right, so let's take a look at that. Resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. His body came back to life in the tomb. Um, and uh, living as I am, uh, he was able uh, alive. And yet, his resurrected body, he came to them and said, touch me and see him. They touched him. They put his, their hand in his side, uh, touched the nail marks and said, you're real. And yet he could appear in a locked room. Um, because he is fully and always using his divine nature, he can, well, be here, there, everywhere, and yet still be true man. Because Christ rose from the dead and did not stay dead, first of all, we know he is the Son of God. That is, he's declared with power to be who he said he was. Only the Son of God could have uh, overcome his words we know are true and to be trusted when he told us ahead of time in three days it's going to happen. Um, when he says what the Father has taught me is true, we ought to believe if someone comes back from the dead, then you know we can trust him with our life as well. The Father, we know, accepted Jesus' sacrifice. He was raised for our justification. And 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul said, if Christ has been raised, well... Then I will believe in him on the last day. I, too, will get a resurrection. Why? Because we know his sacrifice was uh, accepted. Finally, all believers will rise from the dead to eternal life. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. If Jesus doesn't live, if he's not alive, well, we're still in our uh, sins and in the grave. Uh, he is the first fruits, that which comes first. 
Those who've fallen asleep, we come later. The resurrection is the key that makes everything of great comfort. After he rose from the dead, 40 days later, uh, for 40 days he appeared to people, showed himself that he was alive. They saw him in his body, uh, true God and true man. Um, and on the 40th day, he ascends bodily up to heaven. Um, he does that so that they know he's not going to keep appearing to him. Um, we're not going to, if, if, if someone tells you that Jesus showed up as Kroger, you better go down there and see. It's not true. It's not true. When he comes back, it'll be the last day. We know that he has ascended. Um, he does it after 40 days so that we have 40 days of the proof of his resurrection. He didn't do it immediately. Um, he bodily would no longer appear to them. He did promise that he would be with them in the church uh, wherever uh, he was. Um, and so he told them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you. And lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Even though he has ascended, it doesn't mean that he is absent in fact, what we find here is that when it talks about the ascension, Ephesians 4, 10, and 12, um, I'm going to mention both this as well as the gifts that he gives. He who descended, that is, the one who came down from heaven, is also the one who ascended, went back to heaven after his resurrection, far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. That Jesus ascended, he is now present in his body everywhere. John Calvin said that Jesus' body went up to heaven and it's up there and that's why it can't be down here in Lord's Supper. Well, that's not what it means. The scriptures say that he did it that he might fill all things. Uh, that's what it's about. And the one who ascended gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. That's me. He gave me, he gave the church gifts We've got the words of the apostles and prophets and evangelists, and he made sure that there are going to be pastors. Why? I'm supposed to equip the saints. I've got work of ministering, serving you with the word, and of building up, edifying the body of Christ. He promises where I am, there my servant will be. Being at the right hand means he is everywhere exercising his power. There is a reason why so often in the churches you'll see one of two things. You'll see a crucify, uh, a crucif a crucifixion, no, a, a cross with the body on it. A crucifix. <laughs> you'll see a crucifix. It's the gray hair. It's the gray hair. <laughs> you'll see a crucifix, which is Jesus' dead body on a cross, because that's his thing. Or you'll see, and in our church, you've got the hands raised up, the cross is behind him, but the hands raised up because Jesus is ascending. That's an ascension day pose. Why is it an ascension day pose? So that we know that, uh, concerning his ascension, uh, that he is still with us, present everywhere, giving out his gifts in his church. That's why the Ascension Day post. Use, uh, sometimes you'll also notice with the old altars, they'll have a statue, and under his feet is a blue ball, because it's the idea that that's the sky, and he is ascending. Um, behind our altar, the color of the paint, light blue, Ascension Day. Um, he will come back again on the last day, concerning his coming for judgment. Uh, he has gone to the right hand, to be at the right hand of God is to be, well, God is everywhere. To be at his right hand is to be at the place of power, to be everywhere for us. Christ also, according to his human nature, with divine power and majesty, rules and fills all things, especially governs and protects his church. When he comes back again, he will turn visibly with great glory. It'll be like the lightning. You're not going to miss it because it'll be the last day. He will return and judgment day will immediately come. He does not come back to set up an earthly reign. There will not be a thousand-year reign. When he comes back, that's the end. His kingdom is not of this world. He will then separate the believers and unbelievers, the sheep and goats. For the believers, this day will be a source of great comfort. Our redemption is drawing near. Even the phrase, come Lord Jesus, is a uh, uh, asking the Lord to return 
that we might receive our heavenly reward. However, for unbelievers, that last day is going to be one of great woe and hell, uh, for they will receive uh, the reward of not having received Christ uh, for the forgiveness of their sins. The fruits of Christ's exaltation. Uh, and what is the end of his entire work of redemption? Having done all this, that I may be his own, live under him, his kingdom, serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. He has come down and done all of this, and now in his state of exaltation, he's still getting the word out that we might be saved. He wants us to be righteous, that I may be righteous in his sight. He wants us to be free, free that we might serve him without fear. He wants us to be with him forever. How do we know this? Well, it all goes back to the resurrection. If he was raised, then we will be raised. Um, and so we say that if, mm-hmm. if Christ, has, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then all of this is for nothing. Um, my preaching is false. We're all still dead in our sins. Christ is the only thing that matters uh, with that. So that gets me through kind of the second article of the Apostles' Creed, that is with Jesus and what uh, he has done for us. I do have a uh, another week of devotion for you. I got stanza one of uh, the song, uh, the hymn, Christ the Life of All the Living, Psalm 51. Romans 3 is that passage that particularly talks about the long gospel and Christ being the atonement, uh, and then the morning and evening prayer that's uh, listed with it. Uh, We've got one more class next week, uh, and then we'll take a break, I think, until May. Uh, We'll get through the right up of Lent and the Easter season. Anything else? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to preach your word, for you having risen from the dead and ascended to the Father. We know that you are present here in this teaching and that you desire all to be saved and to come to that knowledge of the truth. And so uh, uh, we thank you for your mercy in having the truth proclaimed so that we might believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.